The Academic Podcast Agency. Welcome to the Whitetail Stories podcast, a new series exploring why we, as humans, feel compelled to carry out the strange act that is telling stories. Will, how are you today? I am very, very well. I'm very excited that we've made it as far as episode three. We're still here and uh, we're here to share another story with you and uh, reflect upon its purpose, meaning and future. Just as a quick intro, I'm Daniel. I am a storyteller, story lover and director of creative programme at the Story Museum in Oxford. And my name's Will Hood and I am an audio anthropologist sometime documentary filmmaker, podcast creator. So, we made it as far as episode three. That's a Herculean task. I think so. I think so. It's a hat trick, isn't it? I mean, that's got to count for something. And I think also, if you're listening to this in your pods, earbuds, car, home, wherever you listen, you've made it as far as episode three, which is assuming you haven't started here. But wherever you've started, you're very welcome. And today, I believe we are dealing with another trilogy, the last of the three stories uh, that Dan and myself made together roughly 15 years ago. And today's story is called Comedy. That's right. And just to uh, reassure everyone that's, that's listening to this, it doesn't end there. This is just the, the sort of first chunk of stories. There's more to share. There's more people that we want to talk to as well. So this podcast will be continuing beyond this. So we're very excited about where we go next after the um, sharing with you the stories that we've made together. And we've got a number of ideas for guests uh, who are expert um, and authorities in the realm of storytelling. If you have any ideas yourself, anybody that you'd really like to hear from or that you think would be appropriate for this show, then please get in touch and let us know. Or if you yourself are someone who is uh, some sort of authority or enthusiast around stories and their purpose in human existence, reach out. Yeah, maybe you just know a bloody good yarn. That would in be which, good. In which case, get in touch, and we'll probably screen screen it first, but uh, it would be nice to hear from you nonetheless. <laughs> no screening. Let's just, let's just make it... <laughs> just open the gates. Yeah. Let them all in. Okay, so tell us about comedy, Dan. Comedy was a piece that was written, so it was written around the same time as Bully and Moment Catcher. Um, uh, what to say about it? The, the thing that keeps sticking with me is that this, it was a dream. I literally had a very vivid dream, woke up and wrote it down and it almost came out in one go. So this is, that's, that's what we're hearing today. Okay, so it came to you as if some kind of vision was uh, compelling you to commit this to sonorous story form. I think that's a bit grand. I don't know if I've been visited by the story gods, but it's... Uh... <laughs> It started as a as a dream, which which a lot of ideas do, and I'm hoping we can chat about that kind of that process later. Okay, so let's press play and then uh, see what we think of it after we've listened. Here we go. And Steve wakes up to find himself sat in a bare white room with his hands bound behind his back. While the hum of the strip lights seemed to soundtrack the air, but Steve's stuck in the centre of this room on his chair. So as he flips his eyelids open in the room on the right, he can see an old man pacing in tears shaking his back arched in the light. Steve meanwhile struggles to move, but his hands are bound, numb at his feet. I mean, he made no bones about this, he's got no choice now but to stay put on his seat. So he starts playing Pong inside his head, trying to figure out how he got there. His mind skills back a week, a month, but still he gets nowhere. Feels like he's pushing against the grain, it's like his whole mind's just blank. It's like the more that he tries to swim to the top, the bigger gets the tank, and then all of a sudden... He dismembers, and remembers himself in a place far away. To a time when he, aged seven, used to run around and play. Friends by the riverside, laughing to his chest. 
and snort flew out of his nostril and lying on his back watching cloud shapes. But soon his childhood became a child heart. And his father died from a tumour of the heart. It's hardly the best place for a young life to start. Stephen hasn't been the same since his father passed away. I think he's taking it hard. And days on the swing became days on the sink. Washing the tears from his face Brushing his teeth like crazy Just trying to remove the salty taste And nothing seemed to break through to him Nothing seemed to break down his walls He'd just sit hiding during all the lunch times In the empty school halls But he stopped eating his lunch He began to walk with a hunch Became quiet and introspective He drew himself from the crowd You know he used to be loud But words no longer seemed effective He needed direction in his life And lo and behold that was what he got when one evening he was sat there watching the late night comedy slot. Oh, what sort of an angle is he? Well, it corners and now. He really does. I really hope this is. Haven't you? Good evening and welcome to the comedy hour. With special guests, Rod Steger, Michael Johnson, Spanky the Clown, and Ray Murray. But first, your host, Mr. Justin Wilde. Thank you, it really is wonderful to see you all tonight. Welcome, we've got a brilliant evening of entertainment ahead for you. First up, I'd like to, to introduce you, really, to an inimitable, charismatic, genuine, funny man. Please put both your hands together for the wonderful Mr. Ray Murray. Thank you, thank you. Lovely to see you all. My aunt was very tall, very tall. Feet like a couple of lemons, really. Ray Murray. It was like he turned into humour all the things he went to say. I guess for Steve it struck a chord Cause from that moment on He'd get home every night and write Jokes and gags and routines and tales And he'd just practice them all through the night It was like the one thing that Steve had To turn his feelings into words His emotions to verbs To really make the best out of the worst To allow himself to poke fun at all these things That pulled him down I mean, this wasn't just the case of someone playing the clown But it had that effect It lifted his moods And he began to test material on friends and something funny always came out when he put the paper down to the pen. And before he knows it, he's winning prizes at school camp town shows. Seems to be getting more confident now, forgetting about his woes. And so it goes. And so he grows till he's flowering at 23. Let's just fast forward it till then. That's a good time to rejoin the story. And turn it into a children's playground. and hurried across the garden. Some more. Seven years performing, knows his craft pretty well now. He knows how to get his point across and how to win over the crowd and every time he performs he finds he's got new things to say. It's like his views on the world just become more acute, his skills grow every day and audiences grow as he does. At least performing six nights a week, till people all over the country are queuing up to hear him speak and speak he does about the stuff, the truth he feels in his heart. About resentment of a nation that seems to be permanently ripping itself apart and matters the spirit we all just seem to overlook each day. And all this done with panache, humour, in Steve's usual inimitable way and people were crazy for it, quick to tell him that they were. But he wasn't doing this for his ego, he just wanted to confer truth and make light of situations we all probably bury deep inside. Because if you feel it, why not say it? We only grow and we don't hide. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage of wonderful comedian. He's picking up quite a lot of steam on the new comedy scene. Put both your hands together for Stephen Brecken. 
You know, I used to work with this guy who's short squat bloke, you know, face like a bag of rats. Stunning Swedish girlfriend with breasts like kittens fighting out of a cell. I couldn't help but imagine him like a like a little Jack Russell on a leg, you know, his, his gorgeous woman, his little bloke, his little face dripping with sweat. And then one day he told me, Steve, the secret of it's all pulled in close to his noxious breath. He says, is the shaving of one's balls. It makes your chap look bigger, your bits more suckworthy. My lady met mine last night, he said as he breathed in between his ugly teeth. Mr. Stephen Bracken. Next time I was at home, with just a little too much time. I found my way into the bathroom, grabbed my flatmate's beard trimmers. My testicles are funny things, you know, they're the wrinkled kings of libido. They're, they're not smooth, so you've got to be focused if you want that hair to go. Stephen Bracken! Mr. Stephen Bracken, ladies and gentlemen. The wonderful Stephen Bracken. It's only in moments such as these that I really actually begin to realise the true virtues of sitting lotus with a candle in front of my eyes. I'd love to think I don't need to meditate, you know, that my mind is finely tuned, that I'm an evolved human being just here to share the world's and nation's truths. But the truth actually is that my mind wanders like a dog on heat. Chasing state rep Labradors down winding Spanish streets. I'm cut. I'm cut. I'm cut. I'm cut again. At that point, I peruse the battle site now that is my crotch. I'd rather leave it half hair, half bald, like legs to the chest of Hasselhoff than have to end this debacle with something more precious being hacked off. Why can I not focus when there's a divine spirit and benevolent being that actually lives inside of me? You know, we all at one point in God's big balls, so to speak. I'm cut. I'm cut. I'm cut again. But the truth is, surely each of us have the potential to wake up to our divinity. You know, we're all at one point in God's big balls. Stephen Bradham. loved Steve. They loved his fire and his fury. His arrogance and wit was always good proof for a story and some people went so far as to dub him a genius. Angry articulate. A modern day Lenny Bruce. The future of British comedy that soon brought his new home. And so all went quiet every time that Steve spoke. Shh, Steve's gonna say something. But that's a heavy crown to hold on a neck that's still so young Becomes easy to confuse where starts ask where son But that's exactly what Steve struggled with to put it mildly Truth he began to think of himself just a bit too highly you know Began believing his own press, being arrogant and demanding Hardly attributes most of us find charming But charm that he continued His audiences grew tenfold And Steve's business sense became just that much more cutthroat I don't care who they are No I'm not going on without it no, I want five boxes of marshmallows, I told you. Steve, please, it's been reasonable. No, 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 I want them now. Jed. 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 You lost your way. You lost your way. Oh, you lost your way. Oh, and it hurts so bad It's gonna hurt so bad It's gonna hurt so bad Every night, in every town, regardless of where you'd arrive, Steve would just get up onto the stage and reenact the same set of lines. I mean, word for word, verb for verb, they were the same lines he'd written 18 months ago. And he'd been performing so much recently as becoming this weird, slick show. But Steve had been so busy with gigging, touring, travelling, drinking partying, drug-taking life that he hadn't found a moment in his schedule to sit down and write. 
But he soon started to get inquiries, you know, from agents and the like, as to when all this material for his new show would arrive. And now when he got a moment between the parties and the gigs, and he sat down, nothing came out. None of his trademark acerbic wit. No, no one-liners or insights. No tortured prose or political skits. No, nothing. The paper stayed blank by a little bit of scribbling. And so every time that you found the time, you just find the time to sit down and try again. And every time, bar none, you just found that the results were the same. Maybe he was thinking about it too much. Maybe he just wasn't in the right head state. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to write anything unless it was really, truly great. Maybe he's just not feeling it. Maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe he's just feeling the pressure of everyone thinking he's really wonderful. But whatever the reason, the result was the same. Steve sat down to write, and the paper stayed plain. And soon doubt started to fill up the corners of his sphere. Where before his arrogance just seemed to act like a veneer. Glossing over all the holes in his self-esteem. But as the holes began to show, so too began this recurring dream. Steve was sat on an empty stage, just him and an audience. In his right hand, he was holding a golden balloon. And every time he went to speak, the balloon covered his mouth so no sound could come out. The audience was slipping away, talking, chatting, disinterested now. And then the cry came from the center of the audience. Pony! And how they started to laugh. Tears of laughter were pouring down people's face. Steve went to say something funny to win them back, but the balloon covers his mouth again. And again from the audience. And they cried and roared and laughed till their sides were splitting. And in the town, the chatter, the booze, the failure. He tried harder to speak, but the balloon got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till he couldn't even see the audience anymore. All he could see was the gold. <clears throat> well, the dream plagued Steve's mind, and every night it came back. And after it, each time he'd wake up sweating in a panic attack. <gasps> he checked the clock. It would often be dark, and he tried to get to sleep again. But instead he just lay there worrying and waiting till the light of morning came. He seemed to be worried that he lost his flow. That he'd become a fake, a show. That his talents were something he'd had to forgo. That there was nowhere he could grow. But the more that he worried, the less he was able to write. And the less he wrote, the more he worried, the more the dream came back each night. And the more the dream came back, the more he spent the days fatigued. And the more tired he became, the less he felt rooted in reality. Steve started to crave anything to ground, distract his mind. Drinking binges became more regular for longer bouts of time, sometimes starting early morning when the fears first crept in and he began to accept anything that was offered up to him. Hallucinogenics, up as down as one night stands with willing fans, snap decisions, televisions, spending sprees and speeding vans. Through all of this, the paper stayed blank so his demons made themselves comfortable as the dream kept coming back. 
Steve, we've got a big night ahead of us. There's a lot of talent bookers in the audience. We're really going to need you to be on the ball, 100%. Steve, look me in the eyes. Say, I am a star. A wonderful, wonderful star. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Stephen Rackham. I used to know I used to know a guy um, short squat sorry I used to know this bloke um, I used to know I used to know a guy not even funny I used to super dark it's super dark the the whole yeah. thing um especially sat here listening to it with headphones on it's really quite claustrophobic right mm. all the sounds are very close and there's just those crowds that sense of um of panic you know even mm. when uh when he's a young kid there's that sense of everyone's looking at me do you know what i mean yeah, so it really struck me actually. What a wonderful job you with that one you did on the sound design. It oh, really, thanks, man. yeah, it's it's gorgeous, and it kind of feels like a real progression of the work that we were doing around that time. Thinking, it, I think the flow was probably bully, and then we did that piece with Polar Bear Return, and then yeah. that fed into this. But it it feels like it 
it sits in a really nice place of creating the world around the score and the story that I'd created, but just adding this other, which is just made it feel like a movie. Yeah, it's quite cinematic, isn't it? I mean, I suppose, like, in part, that is because I feel like I've heard that story before. And and that's mm. not to say that it's not quite original, you know, the no. way that you've written it. But do you know what I mean? Somehow there's something quite timeless about the damaged or and even paranoid comedy genius. That that seems like yeah. a kind of archetypal character. Yeah. It strikes me in listening back to it, and I remember that although the I mentioned at the start that it sort of came out in a dream and very much that sort of first, the first setting of the asylum and the person in the asylum and then this start of their story of, of a young man going into comedy did come from a dream. But then I ended up on this kind of quite obsessional tract of, of researching people like Lenny Bruce and Bill Hicks and those kind of semi-tortured comedians, which all fed into the kind of makeup of the show of the piece i i don't know in reflection how effective i was at writing um, a piece of comedy that reflected their genius I, I i'm pretty clear now hearing it that i didn't but, but I had no to go. no no i i think you caught certainly the darkness of it i mean both those characters i don't know an awful lot about them but i mean um lenny bruce was he's a heroin addict isn't he who ends up ODing when he's trying to take on yeah is it like a, it's not a defamation, it's not the right word, but it's like um, they wanted to censor him, didn't they, for bad language. And so it was a big breakthrough in, it, it's held up as a kind of uh, breakthrough case in free speech. He was and died very young and, you know, was kind of blazed a trail that has laid the foundations, I think, for a lot of contemporary comedy. It, it, it was dark and it was funny, but it was yeah. also, it was so brave, you know, yeah. it was so human. I mean, I always amazing. think the curious thing with comedy, and perhaps this is as it should be, is that it doesn't tend to age very well. Even the really good stuff, right? And, and of course, there's exceptions to that. But I used to love Bill Hicks, and I still have a huge respect for him as a personality. He was brave. Mm. You really felt like he was on the, the edge, walking the edge. You had this kind of rock and roll persona. But quite often things are, with comedy, are grounded in a political context or a social context, which doesn't always carry over decades later yeah i guess so it's very present isn't it by its nature especially that kind of end of of comedy and you talk about people like hicks and and lenny bruce and and they're very much like commenting on the now you know on what's happening in their lives as well as this kind of this sort of grander human experience as yeah. far as within the spirit of this podcast you know the why tell stories i'm fascinated by this idea that the comic and in all of its iterations, so right back, I suppose, to the court jester, occupies this very unique place in society, doesn't it? In the sense that it can say things um, or they can say things that nobody else can in wrapped because it's wrapped mm -hmm. in the context of comedy or it's presented as humour. Yet you've got this rather special dynamic where that person is unique in that they can speak truth to power in a way that perhaps nobody else can. As far as why tell stories, do you think there is something uh, unique about the joke or when something is, is presented as comedy? Uh, do you think that's, that's a unique type of story format or, or what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a unique type of story format, but I also think there's something universal in it in that it's wrapping up a message um, or a teaching or something that the storyteller or story creator or story writer wants to share mm. in a way that makes it digestible. And and certainly talking about Bruce, Lenny Bruce and Bill Hicks, it was very much, there was an agenda there. You know, there was something that they wanted to share, which was either societal political societal you know in in um in bill hicks's case very spiritual you know really trying to push forward the kind of legalization of drugs and those kind of things so 
it was, but it was wrapped up in this very digestible format that was humour because people are more likely to accept something th- through that lens, I think. Again, trying to address this unique dynamic of the comedian and, and to use that kind of archetypal language of, of the jester and the king, I think the really important dynamic is that the jester doesn't want the crown. Right. So if you think about the power dynamic, he can't be mm. king. He's not vying for control or for power because he's a fool. Right. He's a jester. Everybody knows that. And I think that's the important yeah. thing is that they present as harmless. And by doing so, they can actually communicate very powerful messages. There seems to me something quite important in that. And it's a massively important role. And it's still something that's there, for instance, in as far as I'm aware, in um, in India, that the king still has a fool or a jester, because they're right. quite—they're tra- traditionally the one person that can say anything. So they can, st- to any position of power, they can challenge it. And I feel like, in some ways, uh, you won't know this about me, but I can speak with some authority because I actually trained to be a fool for a year of my life. <laughs> I, I went- Wonderful! <laughs> I want to know I, everything about this. So I went through. Um, I was. I was making these kind of pieces and then making theatre shows. And I went by chance to a, a training course that was around performers on stage. So it, was a, it was a kind of, I struggled with playing characters, although some characters in that piece. Um, and I thought, I need to come out of myself. So I went to this workshop and the person who was leading it is a, is a teacher called Jonathan Kay, who calls himself a, a 21st century fool. And uh, I ended up, because I became so in, interested in his technique, um, studying as part of the first nomadic academy of fools where we traveled around europe um for 10 months studying um his techniques and then training other people in each of the european cities that we went to wow how old were you when you were doing this i was probably in in my early 30s i think when i did a late 20s early 30s and is there are there lessons or or techniques or even coping strategies that you took from that time that you still use today, I wonder. Massively, yeah. It's been a really formative experience. It's not something that I consciously use, but it's something that I subconsciously use all the time. It was very Mm. much around um, hearing. So the whole process was you'd go into a space when you're doing a performance and the first... Uh, interaction that you have with the audience is very consciously listening to their stories and then what you do is using your own cast of characters that you've conjured from the based on your own uh your own asp- your own personality that you observe over over a period of time and, and create into characters so the part of you that's that's greedy or that's uh that's you know the manipulative parts you you turn them into into almost your repository of, of actors and then it's an opportunity to reflect back those stories and create some sort of agency for the audience around the decisions that are made in it and adding a sense of humour and play so that people feel that they can uh, a- approach their stories with openness in a way that possibly to be too uncomfortable to do otherwise. Mm. It, it's really fascinating the... Um from an audience point of view, I mean, I think there's still more to be said about the role of the comedian. Mm. uh, And that's definitely the heart, the dark heart of the story that we've just listened to. But from an audience point of view, there is this huge catharsis that can happen um, when uh, comedy is, is connecting and resonating, especially if you're in a large group of people, right? Have you Mm. seen, this is making me think of, um, have you seen the book of Mormon? I've never seen it. I've heard of it. Oh, my Lord. Right. I'm not a fan of musicals, really, as as a as a format. You know, it's something I could easily miss. Um, And, you know, most people will be aware that the Book of Mormon, although it is a musical, is, is pretty out there. But it was a unique experience for me and a very, very enjoyable one to sit there with such a a huge audience, maybe you know, 500 plus people in that audience and just hear the most offensive, obscene (laughs) jokes just again and again, you know, aggressively hurled at you. Um, 
and I'm not easily offended, but I mean, it was outrageous, the stuff coming off this stage. And there seems to me two things there. One is that I can't think of any other format where that would even be acceptable. But there was also that experience of uh, going through that with everybody else, you know, laughing until you're, you're crying about very sensitive subjects in different contexts. Mm yet having this huge communal experience. I mean, there was something um, really special about that that I don't think I've ever experienced elsewhere. And the only thing I can say about it, I suppose, of why that would have that effect and why it would be so pleasant is that there's some kind of like human fundamental that above all else, life is absurd before anything else. Like that, mm. that seems to be the primary characteristic I mean, I guess I'm putting that as a as a proposition as much as a statement. Sometimes it's difficult when you're in the hardness of life to approach it with humour and to laugh at it. It all becomes so serious, right? And it all becomes yours. It's all, you know, you get lost in the minutiae of it and, and the difficulty and the challenge of it. And there's something magical, both in terms of the role of the comedian as storyteller, but also the st story as a whole of mm. being able to see the um to see other sides of it you know and it's there's well there's and the futility and the nonsense of it right and the yeah. fact that although we strive to make sense of all these patterns continually life doesn't actually make sense right and just to acknowledge that and also the communality of it that there are things that we kind of in our own existence we think is just yours you know but mm. then when someone's echoing it on a stage or, or, or on a screen or in a in a book and you realise that other people are connecting with this too, that it's like, actually, this is quite a universal experience for us as humans. I think Bill Hicks especially had this amazing way of taking quite um, quite philosophical ideals and, and putting them through the lens of comedy mm. to make them feel more digestible and to, to, to give people space to reflect and and see the kind of like you say like the futility and the kind of the absurdity of 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 all these kind of little loops that we get ourselves in yeah and and there's something by the nature of that there's something very cathartic about it isn't it i mm. mean and a good joke is a good story right it can, they, yeah you know or, or i wonder i suppose it hypothetically the other way do you think it's possible to tell a good joke without wrapping it in a good story i, I, I yeah i don't i mean i don't know i'm no authority on this you know i'm i'm as you could hear from that piece i'm definitely not a comedian um <laughs> <laughs> feet but, like a couple but, of lemons what do you mean that's yeah, hilarious I mean, come on um but i think there's there's some great 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 examples of kind of those kind of shaggy dog tales or those or those story-based jokes that yeah. are very much a short story you know and, and often when i've when i've been teaching storytelling people are like well i can't tell a story it's like you can if you can tell a joke you can tell a story because yeah. it's yeah. you know they're, they're very similar and i think the role of the um the sort of traditional role of the storyteller or the shanake as it would have been in society long gone has possibly the, the ended shanake. up yeah tell, that's tell me that of, word i'm not familiar is, is that another way to say shaman no, it's a it's a, the Irish storyteller. So it's oh, kind the of Shanake. within, yeah. So within okay. within our culture, um, or this kind of you know the, of the of the United Kingdom, if you want to call it that. Um, but those, I think, the people who would have accept have, have taken those roles quite often become you know someone down the pub telling telling jokes mm. or telling or telling you know great yarns based on their lives. So I think there's although the skill sets generationally are the same they possibly morph in different ways because we're not gathered around a fire, you know, we're gathered around, around a bar table or wherever it is. Or over Zoom. Or over Zoom, yeah. <laughs> the Zoom storyteller. <laughs> do you know, it's fascinating, Will, where each of these conversations go because I, I came to this um, having been in, thinking about this thing of dreams and where stories came from dreams, having found a bit of text that kind of I just thought was fascinating to share. But I'm aware that I might be adding a whole other tangent that we're we're kind of going down this comedy route which is fascinating and i hadn't even thought about well i think you should share your quote though now if you've if you pulled it out i've pulled it out i've got it out. yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah. this is this really struck me so this is a book um that i found in a charity shop in when i was living in devon 
by a guy called Julian David. And it's a book called Interweaving Symbols of Individuation. Wow, and what a title. It's, yeah, and he is a sort of disciple of Jung. And it's basically, it's, it's a wonderful book. I've, I've never seen it since or before. Um, and I've found out that he lived in that small town where the charity shop was and, and possibly left the copy in there himself. Wow. Um, so so did uh, when you say disciple of Jung... I don't think uh, do, he studied directly with him. Okay, okay. He no, was just heavily read, well-informed of of his work. Yeah, so he was or is, I think he's still alive, a, a South African um, uh, scholar um, who came to... So he says he, oh, he's born in England, came to Southern Africa to help establish the Centre for Jungian Studies. And the book basically takes traditional African and European fairy tales and then breaks them down into their components of why these things symb- symbolically... Um, are powerful to us as humans and yeah. it's, it's a fascinating book it's not the only kind of scholarly approach to story and why it's important of course but it's but it's fascinating to read so, so just before perhaps you read the quote i just want to um f- a signpost for any audience member but young obviously contemporary of freud uh early psychoanalysis but was very much interested in dreams and talked a lot about archetypes and the basic idea behind archetypes are that um is the is the notion that there's these reoccurring symbols or characters which worked across cultures this was his hypothesis that human beings use to make sense of the world is, mm. is that a good good yeah, way to describe a, it that's a great description and looping it back it was also the basis of the full training i'd done I did. So there was, right. it was all around archetypes and embodying the archetypes. So there's a kind mm. of uh, this role of embodying these aspects. And so early theatre very much worked in that way, didn't it? There, there was, um, I can't remember the name now of the, is it the Italian tradition where you have the masks with the long noses? Yeah, Commedia dell'arte, yeah. Right. And there's perhaps seven different characters in that, is there? Like yeah, fundamental, characters. yeah, starting blocks to build your specific characters on. Mm, and part of the thinking around the training I, I worked on was that where it's, if you go right to the back of the stage to the kind of Greek gods and the archetypes, those things are larger than life. They're like individual characters. But as they morph down and move further forward to the kind of theatre that, you know, the fourth wall theatre, those things almost shrink and become a characteristic in an individual rather than, you know, this great big um, balloon nosed character. It might just be a, a sort of a way that the person carries themselves in the world. So it was a, it was a, f- a fascinating process. Yeah, I bet. Um, so this this quote absolutely floored me because it, it I'm I'm you know if you you can't see but because um, obviously you're listening rather than looking but to my side a, a, a huge shelves filled with books of fairy tales and and traditional tales from all over the world it's been a kind of you know for the last twenty years has been the one thing that I kind of keep collecting and going back to and. And then alongside it, this kind of creative process of or quite often writing out of dreams of starting something from a dream because it felt like a kind of a, quite a, 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 a deep well to draw from. And he says here, um, when these stories were told, both teller and told were already in that inner world, the night, and even their days would be infinitely more than our own in that inside of things. It is the world of the dream and many tales probably started as dreams. Someone had a dream. He or she would take it to the village dream interpreter, who was often the same as person as the village storyteller. It was considered a big dream, that is for the whole community and not just for the individual. So it was told and started to journey down the ages, retold, developed a bit, told again, developed again, but always within a fidelity to the symbols, or accretions would drop away. Certainly fairy tales are like dreams, they use the same symbolic language, have the same sort of feel, and the fidelity of the storyteller is the same as the fidelity of the interpreter of dreams. And that notion for me, that these kind of stories, you know, these fairy tales, the kind of everything from Cinderella right through, that kind of almost line the walls of our subconscious, possibly came from a starting point of an everyday person's subconscious that it came from a dream that came out they went and told it to someone and it became everyone's uh everyone's property and then got mm. told and retold and there's something potentially about the purity of that uh of of our subconscious of like of of taking these symbols and sharing them that's meant that they're timeless and i think that's just 
I don't know if it's true. It's obviously, it's a hypothesis by Mr. Julian David, but what a fantastic and fascinating concept. Well, these ideas have to come from somewhere, right? Right. They haven't yeah. spontaneously, uh, or, or at least it's, it's as equally as mystical for them to spontaneously come from nowhere as it is to say they were dreamt or created by individuals subconscious that was then shared with the group. I mean, I mean, surely Jung used to talk about the collective conscious, didn't yeah. he? This idea of the ether and that we were all influenced and influencing this idea, which sounds pretty out there in... Our, our modern, very secular, scientific-based culture. But I can't really see how it could be any other way, right? And this, and it happens quite a lot of people. They, they say, you know, I've heard it said that the good ideas go to multiple people at the same time. There's These things are just floating. And, and who's to say, you know, and plenty of people have said that it is the case, that the writing process itself is not like a dream. You know, there's, I think there's a fascination. Um, we've, we're very sort of bound in the, um, in the world of mind and the thought. And I thought this up and, you know, all of our, all of our kind of IP law and all those things are based on this thing of who's thought it up. Who owns but, this thought? Who owns this? It was my thought. You know, I thought this out and laid yeah. it out with my brain rather than this thing that these things just sort of, they're there. You know, these things are, are we've got thousands of years of stories that sit above us and, and around us. I mean, the fascinating thing about dreams in that context is that although certainly when you try to recall them, when you tell them to a loved one first thing in the morning, you know, oh, I had this crazy dream, and then you try and retell it. And quite often uh, there's this slight gap, isn't there, between what is explainable and what makes perfect sense in the dream mm. world. You know, in the idea that you're, grandma suddenly turned into an Alsatian or something and that seems perfectly normal or uh, justifiable in the dream world whereas when you then say it out loud well of course it doesn't make any sense so there's a fluidity to it it defies the laws of physics and and rationality which you have to abide by in the everyday yeah and I think there's also I would agree with that but I think there's also different types of dreams you know, and I'm sure we've all experienced that thing of there are some dreams that are like that. You know, if you've ever written down your dreams that you're like, God, it was so profound. And you read it back and it's just kind of nonsensical. But then once in a while, there's the there are dreams that feel like there's something else that, mm. uh, that really narrative. And, and in, I, part of why I loved it in here, it was considered a big dream. You know, and that's concept that there are some dreams that are kind of big dreams that are more than just a collection of of, uh, of pearls that our subconscious has strung together and more that's actually something that's ready for sharing and it's something collective. And, you know, you look back through religious texts and they're full of this idea that, that things visited people in dreams. Sure. Well, that's where God presents themselves um, in, me- in many of the big religious meta stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're making me think of a lovely story which I'd like to share with you uh, of my grandma, um, probably three or four years before she died. She ended up in hospital and it was one of those um, horrible situations where she went in for one thing and then because she was in hospital, she got all sorts of other things. Right. But I was going in to visit her in hospital. And she'd been having, I suppose, these kind of lucid waking dreams. But they were overwhelmingly positive. And there was slight that she was slightly aware that they weren't or couldn't be real, but she was really enjoying them nonetheless. And so I'd go in to see her and she was saying, Oh, Will, darling, I've had everybody in here this morning. I've had your grandpa, he's been in here, you know, who had died maybe 10 years earlier. Wow. Roma, who was their dog from years ago, has been here. She was up on the bed. I was feeding her biscuits. It was absolutely wonderful. And, and a whole bunch of other people, you know, from her, her life who were no longer around. And so there was an element that she, she must have known or she knew that this wasn't true, yet she, still in, she was genuinely enjoying the experience nonetheless. Uh, 
it was wonderful. You know, so there is something substantial about dreams, isn't there? Oh, God, yeah. In a way that I think is perhaps, again, in this secular culture that we live in, there's, we're not encouraged to weigh them with significance in a way that perhaps other times and uh, other cultures might. Yeah, and that, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's, you know, it's, we have to realise, I guess, there's a context of, of realising that it's, that is particular to us, you know, and particular to this time. It's not a universal thing that these things are discounted. And it's, you know, there are plenty of other cultures existing and that have existed that have weighed great importance mm. to dreams, you know, as much as waking life. Yeah. And is, 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 that, is that something, you know, to think about that, that there's something in stories that allows that they are our portal back into dream? Yes, they validate the dream state, don't they? And allow us to enter that space again, yeah. So... I think that's probably reached some kind of natural conclusion. I think it has. I always start with these things thinking, what are we going to talk about? And then by the time we end, it's like, I could talk for another hour. I know. That's, let's not do one of those four-hour podcasts Yeah, no, no, yet. we're not. And we have to get on with our lives. So I um, don't know if you want to attempt a signing off. Thank you so much uh, for your, wherever you are in whatever state you're in for lending us your ears for the last however long um, it's, it's always a pleasure to have these chats and to get to share things that have been really just gathering digital mould on a hard drive for, for far too long so it's, it's, it's lovely to share them it's lovely to chat with you Will and um, we will be back we are going to keep doing this I think there's too much we're having too much fun to stop it we don't know what that's going to look like um, we'll have a, we'll put our heads together and see whether we bring someone else in or we to play one of the other many stories that we have up our sleeves we'll figure that out so just you know bear with us I'd like to concur with everything that Dan's saying it's been a real pleasure putting these together I hope that somebody or all of you out there are enjoying uh, what you're listening to please do let us know you can find us now on all of the podcast platforms tell your friends about the podcast if you're enjoying it get in touch with us let us know what you think Dan you're a beautiful human being I'll see you very soon you are too you're listening at home you can't see how handsome he is he's a beautiful man hi everyone see you later <laughs>